Welcome to Christian Life Academy. Uh, we are working our way through the doctrines of our faith. To do so, we are using our statement of faith, which is the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. Uh, we as a church have embraced that as our statement of faith, and so that is what uh, we are using to work our th- way through the doctrines. It is a very uh, methodical method. Uh, the confession has uh, everything broken down into chapters, all which start of the, whatever the subject is, and we are uh, just working our way through in the beginning of the first chapter, which is of the scriptures. Uh, so last week we began um, by looking at the preface to the confession, and then um, we obviously began looking at the uh, first chapter with paragraph one. So today we pick up with paragraph two. All right, so here's paragraph two. Under the name of the Holy Scripture or the Word of God written are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testaments, which are these. Now it's going to list them. That's in your confession. If you if you read ahead, you probably saw that there. Notice that they are defined positively or inclusively, all the books of the Old and New Testament. That's how they define it. But then they go on to list them. Okay, they go on to list them. So this was an important distinction. It's important for us, too. There are other books that some claim to be scriptures. And, of course, this changes relative to the culture at the time. Um, There has always been an attempt by the Gnostics to include additional books that they consider to be secret knowledge. Uh, certainly there is the books of the Apocrypha, and we will talk about the Apocrypha, but there are the books of the Apocrypha, which uh, some want to include in their scriptures, but our confession lists very definitively, these are the books. So you can see, obviously, this is all the books that you should be familiar with of the Old Testament, and then here are the books of the New Testament. The confession paragraph 2 continues with, all of which are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. And then there's one reference, 2 Timothy 3, 16. Now we're going to work our way through how do we know the can- what is the canon, how is the canon established and all that. So don't get too hung up on that, but just recognize the fact that these are the books of God's Word. This is what we consider and what the church has historically considered, as you'll see, the books of God's Word. All right. So, uh, first, as we're talking about the identity of the Scripture, we're going to talk about what the, can- the canon of the Scripture, the canon of the Scripture. So, notice that the confession itself does not explain. I mean, you, you, that was the whole paragraph. Okay, that's the whole paragraph to say what the books of the Bible are. Done. <laughs> so, notice it doesn't explain how or why the books are in the canon. Because it was common knowledge and not in question. The only clarity that was needed was given. That was, which was for the Apocrypha, which you're going to see in paragraph 3. That's the only clarification that's given in the confession about what the books of the Bible are. There was no question if the Gospel of Thomas was part of the canon. It wasn't. If the book of Jasher was part of the canon, it wasn't. If the book of Enoch was part of the canon, it wasn't. These were not in debate. They weren't in debate. So they didn't talk about it. Now, Okay, I almost stole my own thunder right there. I was just ready to pull the trigger. Let's just keep going through the slides and we'll stay on track. All right, so what is canon? What does that mean, canon? Well, it's a measuring rod or rule. It's a measuring rod or rule. For the Bible, it means the books that are inspired by God, meeting the measuring rule of authority. In other words, this is what has been measured and checked And these are the books that have met that standard. That's why they're considered part of the canon. They've met the qualifications. They're part of the canon. That's why we talk about this, the canon of Scripture. So notice this, and think about this truth. God determines the canon. We just discover it. Does that make sense? In other words, man doesn't get to determine which books we believe we should say God inspired. Are you with me on this? We don't get to pick. We just have to discover what they are. In other words, the scripture itself, I just mentioned the book of Jasher. Have you heard of this before? The book of Jasher? Heard of it? Heard of it? It's in the scripture. It's referred to. In fact, it's authoritatively referred to in the scripture as isn't it, as it, isn't it written also in the book of Jasher. So it was a history book 
that covered some period of the Old Testament history, basically, and that book was used as a reference. The book of Jasher is not in the Scripture. It's not considered to be uh, inspired by God. Are you with me? Now, what about in the New Testament? Do we see any references to letters that the apostles wrote to the churches that we don't have in Scripture? Yes. Anyone think of one specifically that Paul wrote? We might have covered this last week. Anybody remember who he wrote it to? Besides Paul? Laodicea. He wrote a letter to the Laodiceans, and there's a reference that Paul, just like the letter to the Laodiceans. So do we have that book in our scripture? No, we don't. We don't have it in there. Now, does that mean that some aspects of that were not inspired by God? Yes, that's what that means. <laughs> But it would be Paul being enlightened by the Holy Spirit with what to send to them. But it's not part of the canon. It's not part of the canon. God determines the canon. Okay, why? Well, otherwise, any authority of man that claims the right to determine what is or is not in the Scripture is placing itself over God. Some believe they must discern or discover what the books of the Scripture are, but God has given us clear evidence that we can rely on. In other words... Some Christians take it to, on themselves to say, well, I need to determine for myself what is truly the Word of God and what is it. Can you see any problems there? Look, how good are you at making decisions? <laughs> do you make mistakes? You do. How about very complicated, really deep decisions? Can you make a mistake? You sure can. Can you see why this would be a problem for us to just except without any problem that some preacher says, look, I've been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, and the Gospel of Thomas is part of the Scripture too. So we're going to put a little insert into all of our Bibles with the Gospel of Thomas. Can you see a problem there? You should see a problem there. Why? Because he singularly makes that decision. It wasn't the church. It was that person. They're essentially placing themselves above God. They're saying, this should be part of the canon. Do you see any dangers there? You should see dangers. You should be going, up. yeah, I can see that's, that's not good. That's, that's a problem. We wake up a little bit. You should, you should shake your hand. Sorry. It'll help you. All right. All Reformed confessions have a list of the books of the Bible, and they are the same books. This is further evidence of the true canon of scriptures. We're going to see that. Obviously, 1689, if you're quick, how many years ago is that? <laughs> what? 450? <laughs> yeah, roughly three, let's say 350, just short. 350. So, 350 years we recognize this, but that's not because this is when it was decided. It wasn't decided then. We're going to get into that. All right. So, first of all, we're going to talk about both canonicity of the Old Testament and of the New Testament. So, first we'll look at the Old Testament. The canonicity of the Old Testament, or what was part of the canon of the Old Testament. Well, the Old Testament canon itself is confirmed in the New Testament itself and by its preservation and confirmation, both Judaism and by the early church. So we'll break that down. We recognize 39 Old Testament books. The Jews recognize 24. Now, if you were, uh, if you were here for Wednesday nights when Brantz was doing his uh, survey of the Old Testament, he broke that down. Um, but I'm going to ask if... One of you young ladies could help by passing these out to people. And then I'm going to ask if you could help by passing this out to people. You see how that worked out? This one right here. Anybody that wants one. All right. Now, this is basically a comparison so you can see. The first, well, okay, so the one that Hattie's handing out is the one that actually has this comparison directly. So it's got the books that we have on one side. And then it's got the books that the Jews recognize on the other side. And you'll see that there is a combination there that's happened. Okay? So, uh, and they're also ordered slightly differently. So, if you'll notice, their changes include putting Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles into one book each. So they don't have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. They have Chronicles. They have Kings. They have Samuel. So that right there means that we've got three more than they do. Are you with me on that? Because of that division. 
they grouped the minor prophets into one group called the Twelve, and they put Ezra and Nehemiah together. Can you see that on the chart? It kind of has the, arrow, the shaded parts that kind of go over to the side there. Do you see that? On the, on the one that, not that one, on that one, the one that Hattie gave out, that shows that. All right? has those dark shaded parts in the middle that kind of connect to the other parts. Okay. Jewish scriptures, this is the second handout now, the one that Abby gave out. Jewish scriptures are composed of the law, or the Pentateuch, the prophets, which are historical, and the writings. That's the three sections of writings. That's what Brantz talked about when he was going through the Old Testament survey. That's the three sections that the Jews break the Old Testament scriptures into. They break them into those, and they've ordered them such. All right. First of all, Jewish preservation of the Hebrew Bible canon that is called the Tanaka, which is the acronym for the three sections of the books. Now, that's what you're seeing. So you're kind of seeing this right here. There's the Torah, which is also called the Pentateuch, or the five books of Moses, and that contains Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Torah, T. Then the Nevi'im, or the Prophets, and that contains all of these books. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the Twelve. That's how the Jew, this is how the Jews break these down. Nothing wrong with them being broken down this way at all. This is just how they do it. And this is why we show 39, they show 24. Then the Kethvim, Kethvim, which is the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon's, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. So that's how the Jews break down the Old Testament into this. So that's why they call it Tanaka, because it actually is the beginning of each of those sections. All right? All right, so this is that chart that, that I was telling you about that you got. You see the Jewish 24 books, and then you see our Christian Old Testament 39 books. So here's the Minor Prophets, which they cause the Book of the Twelve, etc. All right, so you can see here's this number right here in this column is how many books all right, that they have, and then here's how many books that we have. You see this? So they get to hear, this is, this is the 13th book. Right, but for us it's 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. You, you see? Everybody get it? I need a, hand, a head shake. No, you don't get it. You can't see this whole thing? You're missing the law? Yeah, well, it's the same on both sides. <laughs> well, I'll have to see if I can get that printed. But you can see it's the same on both sides. The law is the law. One through five is one through five. The part that is different is this part. The prophets and the writings. Now you can see that the writings, they're ordered differently. You missing this part too? You just have this part? What was that? Who did we not count? Ah, well, I guess that's all the important ones. Holy Spirit guided. No. What was that? I didn't say that, Daniel. Don't get me in trouble. All right. So, anyway, look, well, look at the board then. That's what counts. Look at the slide. You can throw that one away if you want. But that's why there's a difference. That's why there's a difference. Those specific sections are different. And, of course, this, this right column is the order that we have it. And then the left column, that's their order. Right? So they have the law, the prophets, and then the writings here at the end. So you can see they begin with Genesis, which is, of course, apropos. It's the beginning. So they begin with Genesis. They end with the Chronicles. They end with the Chronicles. That's important because we're going to talk about that in a minute. All right, so this is the other. you have this whole one? Okay. So this is the other chart that you have. And you can see that basically the way that they've broken it up time-wise works out this way. So in other words, Psalms, Proverbs, Gleeson, the Psalm of Solomon are kind of right here in timing. Chronicles kind of span a few. These prophets are kind of before the end of Chronicles. You see this? So this is, this is a comparison of how this all looks. Here's the exile. We see Ezekiel Daniel are during the exile, crossing over. Esther is during the period of Ezra. Are you with me on this? And we're going all the way to 400. So this is kind of the timeline right here. This is the timeline moving across, and it gives you an idea of where these books actually came into play. Now, this is the original, obviously, the, the first five books, the books of Moses, the Law, the Pentateuch, 
the Torah. Uh, Job was written sometime during the period of the book of Genesis. Where exactly? We don't know. We just know that there is pretty much complete universal agreement that it is, a, it is the oldest written book in the Bible, that Genesis was written after Job was written. Obviously, Genesis goes back to the beginning of creation, so that's why it would be first. And Job, as you know, is a pretty, uh, is a pretty specific and isolated book because Job tells the story of Job, right? So there's not anything that's addressed to the nation of Israel there. There's, it's, it's really a book in of self. So at any rate, but that's when it was written, was down here. Right. Okay. Luke 24, 44. As you know, I'm not reading all the scriptures, but I'm reading this one to you because this is a key verse. This is Christ speaking. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Now this is Christ referring to the three sections of the scripture that the Jews recognized. The Psalms were the writings. The law is the book of Moses, the books of Moses or the Pentateuch, and the prophets are all those other books. So he is referring to all three sections. He is not referring, by the way, to the works that were written during the period of silence. What is the period of silence, you might ask? Thank you for asking me that. The period of silence is what the Jews consider everything that happened after the writings of Malachi. So in other words, that there was this period of silence where there were no more prophets, there was no more revealed word of God to them. During that time period, books of the Apocrypha were written. Maccabees is one of them. Written during that time period. Christ does not refer to the book of Maccabees. Doesn't refer to it. Was not recognized ever by the Jews as canon. God does explain how to know a true prophet or an author of Scripture. Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 22, and Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. God, I'm sorry, the Jews believe that God gave them a period of silence. I sold my own thunder, see how that... And that included the completion of the canon, Malachi 4, 4 to 6. In 90 AD, so this is after Christ, in 90 AD, rabbis met to officially recognize their canon. They wanted to be perfectly clear. There had been these other books written. So they gathered together to say, this is what the scripture is. No other books were even considered. They did not even consider Maccabees. Wasn't even considered. There was a group in question which eventually became completely accepted as canon, so there was some of them that they were questioning. Song of Solomon, Esther, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Ezekiel. Hard to believe. But there was some question about those books. But they agreed that, yes, they were, they were canon. They were part of the revealed word of God. So there were no other books. There were no books that they rejected because they weren't considered. Only the ones that were questionable they considered, and they said, yes, they are God's word. The conclusion was that there were no changes. They recognized the same books as we have today. So they already recognized these books. They got back together to address the issue. They just basically confirmed, yes, this is the canon of Scripture. Same books that we have today. Okay, confirmations within the Scripture. Well, there are multiple self-authenticating passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that it's God's word. First of all, Moses writes the words of the Lord in Exodus 24, 1 through 8. Why don't you turn to that? Exodus 24, 24, 1 to 8. And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord hath said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and rose up early in the morning, and built an altar upon the hill, and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings, and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. 
And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it in sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. You can see multiple references here, the fact that God spoke to Moses, Moses wrote it down. Moses wrote it down. And then he read that to the people. And then he sprinkled the blood on them and said, this is because of what God said. That's in these words that I just read to you. Basically, that's what he's saying. God himself writes down his word and commands Moses to preserve them. We see this in Deuteronomy 10, 1 to 5. Whose chiseling was on the stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments? Who chiseled those out? Well, if you've seen the movie, (laughs) you know it was the finger of God. It wasn't Charlton Heston, I mean Moses. It was God himself wrote on the stone tablets his law. God wrote the law himself. Moses commands the Levites to preserve the book that he has written. We see this in Deuteronomy 31, 24 to 26. Again, multiple references that God had said things that were then written down to be preserved or that God himself wrote things that were then preserved. By the way, where was he commanded to put the stone tablets? Mark 2, the second... (laughs) The first set got destroyed, right? Remember that? The second set, God commanded him to put them where? In the Ark of the Covenant. Was it the Ark at that time? No, it wasn't. It was a box of gopher wood. No, not gopher wood. I can't remember what the word was. What? That's the other other. Go. Yeah, that's the big Ark with all the animals. That's gopher wood. Uh, I can't remember what the wood was. It might have been. But it was a box because the Ark wasn't actually created yet. You know, the Ark of the Covenant that we think of, in the, in the, it was actually in the, uh, basically the Holy of Holies. That wasn't created yet. So that comes later. So he told him, put it in a box. He did. And then eventually that box became part of the Ark. So they were preserved. It's like they put them in the vault. And the FBI didn't raid it. At any rate, That was a little freebie right there. Okay. Daniel calls the words of the prophets the word of the Lord. It mentions Moses and Jeremiah specifically. We see this in Daniel 9, 1 to 2 and 9 to 13. Let me read that to you. In the first year of Darius, the son of Azurius, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So right away, what's happening here is that Daniel is referring to the fact that he looked at the word of the Lord written by Jeremiah the prophet to determine how long Jerusalem would be destroyed. In other words, he's referring to the fact that the words of Jeremiah were the words of God, that it was his inspired word. Do you see what I'm saying? Then he goes on. To the Lord our God... Belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him, neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. So now he has recognized that God gave us his law through his prophets. Do you see this? And this happens numerous times in the Old Testament, where the Old Testament actually is self-authenticating, that there were, there's references that parts of the Old Testament that were written were the word of God. Jesus and the apostles are authoritative on the Old Testament canon. Christ mentions the Old Testament in its entirety, Matthew 22, 36 to 40, and Luke 16, 16. That's the one I just read. Christ referenced to the specific books of the Bible of the Old Testament in Luke eleven fifty one. That's the one I read. He references Genesis 4, 8 and 2 Chronicles 24, 20 to 21. Now that's an interesting concept. He mentions the first and the last book of the Old Testament. He mentions them both. Christ quoted authoritatively from almost all the Old Testament books. He did not quote from any apocryphal books. He didn't quote from any of them. He quoted from the canon of Scripture. 
The same 39 books that we have in the canon today were in the Jewish canon at the time of Christ. Christ condemned the traditions and customs that the Pharisees had developed, but note that he never condemned the canon that the Jews were using. He never added to it or took away from it. So he criticized them a lot. Would you agree? Like Pharisees and Sadducees, you can't help but think when you hear that term, negative. Right? That's what you think. You think negative because Christ was so critical of them because they had turned the Jewish religion into something that they created, not what he ordained, what God ordained. Criticizes them all the time, but he never criticizes the canon. There is no criticism of the canon. He doesn't say you've added books, you've added words. He doesn't say that. He said you've set up traditions. See that over and over, right? The traditions of men. He mentions this over and over. He doesn't mention books. The apostles mentioned the Old Testament. 1 Timothy 5.18 references Deuteronomy 25.4 and Leviticus 19.13 and Deuteronomy 24.14. Uh, the Jews, I'm sorry, let's look at a few confirmations outside the scriptures. The Jews preserved the Old Testament canon. Philo of Alexandria, who wrote from 25 B.C. to 50, I'm sorry, who lived from 25 B.C. to 50 A.D. He was a Jewish commentator, eventual representative to the Roman emperor for the Jews. He quoted from all but seven of the Old Testament books. Didn't quote any other books. Didn't quote the Apocrypha. Quoted from all but seven. Flavius Josephus, 37 to 100 A.D., was a very prolific Jewish historian. If you don't have the works of Josephus, do we have that in the library? Yeah, I, I have a copy of myself, the works of Flavius Josephus. He is, um, there's a lot of information that we don't necessarily use because it's after the time of Christ and the Apostles and it's references to what was happening with all the rebellions and everything. But he also gives a lot of information about exactly what the Jews believed at the time of Christ. And I would even say, I mean, I don't know, Paul, if you'd agree with me on this, but when you read Josephus, you get the feeling that he might have been a Christian. Because he writes of Christ, it doesn't say like this false, he never says like he's a false prophet or anything like that. He doesn't, he doesn't give any of that derogatory statements against Christ. He refers to him as the Son of Man. He doesn't refer to him as the Son of God. So he makes other references. At any rate, here's what he said about the Jewish canon. We have but 22 books containing the history of all time, Books that are justly believed in, and of these, five are the books of Moses, which comprise the law and earliest traditions from the creation of mankind down to his death. From the death of Moses to the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, the successor of Xerxes, the prophets who succeeded Moses wrote the history of the events that occurred in their own time in 13 books. The remaining four documents comp compromise hymns to God and practical precepts to men. He is recognizing the scripture that the Jews had at the time and confirming it. Josephus includes the same three divisions of the Hebrew Scripture, as said Philo. He does limit the number of canonical books in these three divisions to 22. Ruth was attached to Judges at the time, and Lamentations was attached to Jeremiah. Josephus says there's been no more authoritative writing since the reign of Artaxerxes, the son of Xerxes, which lived from 464 to 424 B.C. This is the same time as Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. We know that Artaxerxes ruled for 40 years. Ezra came to Jerusalem in the seventh year of his rule. Josephus is confirming there was no other books written after this time period. The Jews did not recognize them. Nehemiah came in his 20th year. We see that. Therefore, the last canonical books were comprised in this, composed in this period. Between the time of Malachi and Josephus' writings, 425 B.C. to A.D. 90, no additional material was added to the canon of Scripture. Consequently, there was the notion of a long period of time without a definitively, definitively authoritative word from God. That's what they call the period of silence. From Artaxerxes to our times, a complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. In other words, there have been other Jews that have written of the history of the Jewish people. Josephus is one of them but his works are not considered part of the scriptures. Not considered it. He is not considered a prophet. He is not considered to be someone who God was speaking through. And that's true of all the other books of history. 
The other writings have been other writings have been composed after the completion of the Old Testament. These books were not considered to be scripture. There's been no authoritative word from the Lord after Malachi. The views of Josephus would have represented those of Palestinian Judaism in the first century. So this is what the Jews would have believed. This is what they did believe. This is what they thought. All right, canonicity of the New Testament. First of all, an overview. We must remember that there is one, only one single criteria for canonization, inspiration. All right, that is the criteria, inspiration. There could not be a list of the canon within the New Testament, as it would be illogical, and how could we then trust that scripture as well? So if there was a book of the New Testament that said these are the books of the New Testament, well, how do you know that that's actually God's word to say that those are God's word? Are you with me on that? It would not be logical to use that. God could have miraculously given mankind the list, but instead he moved his church to work through the process, unifying us and setting an example. So could God have appeared, wrote it in the sky, had another set of stones, something, that had a list. Yeah, he could have, right? I mean, he could do anything, except go against his nature. He could do anything, so he could have done it, but it's not the way he worked. The way that he worked in this case is he worked through his church. He worked, he empowered his church to determine this. New Testament canonicity is confirmed in two ways. Within the New Testament itself, and by acceptance by the early church and the church fathers. This is the way that New Testament canonicity is reached. It's either through the writings itself in the New Testament, or it is through the acceptance by the early church. So, neo-orthodoxy today discounts the canon. Robert Bracter, primary translator of today's English version Bible. Now that's also today, that now that's called the Good News Bible. So, look, we're going to get real on this deal, okay? I'm not pulling any punches here. If I pull punches, I'm sinning. I'm not supposed to pull punches. I'm supposed to tell you the truth. So here's the truth. I'm going to point out different translations of Scripture. And if it steps on your toes, I'm sorry. Come back to me, meet with me privately, not in the middle of the class, and tell me why you think I'm wrong. Most of you won't do that. Because you're not so sure. And that's good. We should not be so sure about ourselves. But I'm going to point out some specific ones. So here's a good example of a bad one. And that's the Good News Bible. Here's what he said. He's the primary translator. Here's what he said. The Bible is not the word of God. It becomes the word of God when it speaks to you. See any problems there? In other words... God's word isn't something that we can count on and all know and all know that that's what he meant for all of us. It's however you view it. Then it's the word of God. I'm sorry, but that's the opposite of the truth. The Bible and God's word cannot become the word of God because we accept it or it speaks to us. That would mean we are saying whether or not God's word is God's word. You see this? In other words, it's God's word whether anyone accepts it or not, if it's his word. That's it. It doesn't become the word of God when it speaks to you. You know what that leads to, right? Pick and choose. Pick and choose. That part doesn't speak to me. That's not the word of God to me. This part speaks to me. That's the word of God. See how that works? It is unimaginable for the church to fulfill the Great Commission without the word of Christ committed to writing. The Great Commission. Unimaginable. How could the church possibly, possibly fulfill the Great Commission by word of mouth only? See a problem here? Have you ever played grapevine? Or telephone? Or these two things, right? Kids typically... Adults are a little sharper, but kids will play this. Of course, I was the one who always sabotaged the adults playing it, too, because, you know, I'd change it. But anyway, but you understand what I'm saying, right? You pass the message on, and then by the time it gets down the row, it's changed. Why? Well, because someone didn't quite repeat it the same way, or they interpreted it, right? So what do you think would happen 2,000 years after Christ if none of it was in writing? We'd all be like Mormons. No. <laughs> you, you see what I'm saying, right? It would go wrong. 
it would go awry. Confirmations within the New Testament. Christ said that he is the standard. He is the living word. He says this in Luke 24, 25. Christ pre-authenticated future writers when he chose the apostles, specifically for them to be spirit-driven spokesmen and a standard for the church. We see this in these three passages, John 14, 26, John 16, 12 to 13, and in Jude 3. Paul equates Luke's writing with Scripture. Where? 1 Timothy 5, 17, which also refers to Deuteronomy 25, 4. Luke 10, 7, which also refers to Luke, Leviticus 19, 13, Deuteronomy 24, 14, and also in Matthew 10, 10. We see all these things referred to in Paul when he writes that basically Luke's writings were of the Lord. Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. In fact, in this passage, he talks about that it's hard to understand sometimes. 2 Peter 3, 15-16. But he doesn't say, well, you know, if it doesn't speak to you because it's complicated, then it's not the Word of God to you. No, he says the opposite. It's hard to understand, but it is still the Word of God. Paul tells Timothy what the church should be doing. There is not a beer to be a question about what they should be studying. He does not have to give clarification. 1 Timothy 4, 13 and 16. He doesn't tell them, study this, but don't study this. You don't have to. Do you think that Paul's command to Timothy for what the church should be doing, what, and because of the fact that he didn't say what they should study, that they shouldn't study the Scripture? I mean, you see in Paul's writings over and over again references to how good it is to be checking the Scriptures. Paul tells the church to read his letter to the Holy Brethren, 1 Thessalonians 5.27. Paul tells the Colossians to read this epistle and for another church to read it, Colossians 4.16. Paul uses acknowledgement of his writings as the commands of God as a spiritual test, 1 Corinthians 14.37. Look what he says, look, here is how you will know Someone's a Christian. It's by what I wrote. Now, is Paul setting himself up to somehow be God? No. He's referring to what he wrote because he knew that was from God. Peter makes the commandment of the apostle equal with the Old Testament scriptures. Whoa, really? 2 Peter 3, 1-2. I'll read that one to you because that seems like a biggie. have to find it because I have so many. Okay. The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Second Peter. He's referring to first Peter, right? That ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophet and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of Lord and Savior. Do you see that he is making the words that God spoke to the prophets equal with the apostles? And of the commandment of us, the apostles, of our Lord and Savior. He didn't say, and the commandment of the Lord our Savior. It's of us, the apostles, of our Lord and Savior. He's equating it. The New Testament does not give specific criteria for canonicity, but it gives us clear examples and references. Okay, acceptance by the early church. The early church first recognized canonicity of books because the apostles or their representatives said they were scripture. So in the very early church, this is how they knew, because the apostles or their representatives would say they're scripture. 20 of the 27 books were recognized since the first century without question. They served as the means for testing the rest. They were the four Gospels, Acts, Paul's Epistles, 1 Peter, and 1 John. So those were accepted universally. They were used as the ones to check the other books of the New Testament against to see if they met the standard of canonicity. Due to the passing of the Apostles and the rise of false Gospels presented by the Marcians and the Gnostics, which we'll talk about, the early church fathers realized the need to clearly identify canonized writings. So you have the Gnostics right away, the Marcians the same, where they come in and they have other Gospels, other books, secret knowledge. This is a special book. This tells us things the other books don't. 
because this is secret knowledge, and you need this secret knowledge to truly be a believer. That's where they were at. You had, if you weren't part of their club, you weren't going to heaven. They didn't exactly say it like that. I'm just, you know, paraphrasing. Okay. By 160 A.D., the Gospel of Thomas is presented as an inspired book by the Gnostics. Pause for a second. If you know anything, I think I'm going to talk about him in the next slide, about the lies of history that are being purported about Constantine and the canon of Scripture, you should recognize the Gospel of Thomas. Because the Gospel of Thomas is purported to be, in this modern retelling of history, that it was a book that came to the forefront during Constantine. He squashed it in a whole bunch of other books that were true books of the Gospel, and he basically burned all the copies of them everywhere so that they would not be included because they contradicted what he believed. Well, the problem is, is that we have history that in 160, the Gospel of Thomas existed. It did not come out during Constantine. That's just one of a plethora of examples of why this modern retelling, and we're going to get to that in a second, uh, is false. Okay, so Gnostics raise the question, what is Scripture? The Gnostic Marcians said the God of the Old Testament was not the God of the New Testament. He was mean and now he's nice. Does that sound familiar? Do we still have Marcionism around today? You bet we do. Sadly, a lot of Baptist churches have embraced this. They're antinomians. What's that mean? Against the law. Why? Well, that's the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament isn't the same God in the New Testament. The God in the Old Testament was mean, and he punished people, and he brought down wrath, and all these things. He set all these rules up, made it impossible for you to follow. The God of the New Testament, he's all loving. He's all nice. I guess they're skipping Revelation. And I guess they're skipping all the passages through gospel, through the Gospels where Christ talks about the damnation and the punishment that's to come. Gnostics rejected the Old Testament. They accepted only 10 of Paul's epistles, and they edited out the Jewishness. Based on the 20 books that were unquestionably canon, the early church created four tests to determine the canonicity of a writing. Number one, this is them, this is all four. Number one, apostolicity. What does that mean? Was the author even an apostle or a disciple under apostolic authority. That's number one criteria. How does that apply? Were all the books of the New Testament written by apostles? No. Note, Luke was not an apostle. Judas, or Jude, was Christ's half-brother, not one of the apostles. Number two, content, rule of faith. Was it orthodox and in agreement with the rest of Scripture and the teachings of Christ. In other words, the oral traditions that they actually knew, because this was close to Christ's actual speaking. This also means it must be inerrant. Also, was it self-vindicating? In other words, does it say in it, the Lord said? Does it say itself that it is the Lord speaking? Does it say that? But it also has to be inerrant. If it's God's word, can it have errors? It cannot have errors if it's God's word. So this was the test. Number three, antiquity. Was it old enough to originate in the apostolic era? In other words, if the book didn't appear till 300, then it was not an apostle or the disciple or a disciple of an apostle, right? It, was, it wasn't old enough. Catholicity or acceptance. This has nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church. The book must be accepted by all or most of the church. In other words, if there was only a small group of churches that accepted it, that doesn't qualify. It had to be accepted by most of the church, if not all. All right. So as Christians were persecuted, by the way, this is interesting, their books were confiscated and burned. They often gave the persecutors Gnostic books to protect their true hidden scriptures. So they'd have the scriptures hidden. They'd have these Gnostic books that they could then give to be burned. Now, this is, by the way, it's, it's turned around. It's boomeranged on us. Because now the statement is, oh, we don't have these Gnostic books because they were all burned by the Romans. Yeah. 
but that's because they were protecting the true scripture. You see the problem there? Churches collected the books and letters and appeared to have a sense very early what was scripture and what was not in the way that they treated and preserved those books and copied those books immediately when they got a hold of them. By the middle of the second century, the full canon appears to have become fairly standardized. So by the time we get into 100 to 200, the books had, the canon had basically been established by that point. The collective voice and wisdom of the people of God across time and distance also bears great weight as confirmation. In other words, in the last 2,000 years, this also bears weight on the confirmation. Have there been other books that the church has now recognized as canon across the church? No. There hasn't been. Even the Roman Catholic Church, who recognizes the Apocrypha, the Roman Catholic Church recognizes the Apocrypha, which that's all kinds of problems to begin with. But that's Deuterocanon. Second canon. It's not equal with the canon. They call it Deuterocanon. That's not, not the same to them. Even when they recognize it as canon, they don't consider it the same. All right. Well, we're still okay. Okay, early church fathers. Irenaeus, who lived from 125 to 202, wrote against Gnosticism. He used the validity of the scriptures as evidence. He discounted all other books that have been debated for inclusion but failed canonization. He quoted 23 books of the New Testament. He didn't quote from Philemon, 3 John, or Jude. He quoted from all the rest. Lascivious mentions Paul's 14 epistles. He included the book of Hebrews. You know, there's, Hebrews doesn't say itself, within itself, who wrote it. So there is some mystery on that. But most scholars believe it was written by Paul. And here we go, Lascivious, he actually writes this way and includes this. Athanasius, 367 A.D., sent a letter to churches and lists all 27 New Testament books and uses the phrase being canonized in regard to them. So he recognizes them and writes it. Eusebius recognized 27 books but divided them into accepted and disputed. Here was what he believed was disputed at the time. James, why? The gospel isn't in it. Have you read the book of James? James is a great book. The gospel itself isn't in the book of James. So to him, this was a questionable one. Second Peter, second and third John. Why? Because they were too short. <laughs> really? Yeah, they were too short. No other books were in question. You know, it is interesting, by the way. He didn't have a problem with Jude. Jude's short. Philemon, short. You have a problem with those. All right. Church councils. The Council of Hippo in 393 A.D., which is the church councils means a gathering of the church fathers. They approved a Christian biblical canon which contained 27 books of the New Testament. The Council of Carthage in 397 verified the same canon listed the books that we still have today. Interestingly, both councils listed a few Old Testament apocryphal books as canon differently, even in the face of all the evidence to the contrary. So interestingly, they matched on the New Testament. But both of them listed the Old Testament books, and they both included some books from the Apocrypha. They weren't the same books. And the Jews still didn't recognize those books. So that was a little weird. Non-canonical books. Okay, during the first century, there were already false books and letters written. 2 Thessalonians 2.2 refers to them. So it's during the writing of Paul. He's referring to other false books being written. The Roman Catholic Church of the Council of Trent. Anytime you see something coming out of the Council of Trent, you can just think, this is going to be bad. Whatever it is, this is going to be bad. Because the Council of Trent basically defined the Roman Catholic Church. And all of the ways that they went astray, okay, let's not say all, because there were papal bulls that really took them down some different paths, but a lot of the ways the Roman Catholic Church went astray came out of the Council of Trent. So, they canonized the Apocrypha as Deuterocanon, or Second Canon. Prior to this, no evidence points to the Church accepting them as canon. There is no other historical writings prior to the Council of Trent where anyone wrote that the Apocryphal books were canon in the New Testament. So, there's, just to make sure you understand, the Apocrypha contains books from the Old Testament and the period of silence and a few in the period of the Apostles. The Apocrypha includes them all. 
The Roman Catholic Church's actions signal that canon is a product of the church, not a revelation of God's canon. The early church's standards of determining canon were now trumped by a council. In other words, the Council of Trent, by doing this, was saying, all the early church in the hundreds of years since Christ and their acceptance of a canon is now trumped by a council. We can change it. We can change it. That's a problem. There are many books, even some of the apostles wrote, that are not in the canon. We see one reference in Colossians 4.16. We know there are other letters, there were other things written, not considered part of Scripture. Today there are many lost books that were recently discovered, quote-unquote. The reality is that they have always been around, but for almost two millennia have been recognized as not having been inspired. These were not discarded by some politician. Think Constantine. You understand? That's not what happened. Gnosticism and Marcionism are still alive today, with their ideas being parroted by those that seek to undermine and destroy the canon of God's word. Dan Brown, the author of Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons, you recognize these movie titles? You should. They're big time, the books, the movies. Claim that the Constantine defined the canon and rejected thousands, thousands of Gnostic books. He wrote this in the Da Vinci Code. Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible, which omitted those Gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits and embellished those Gospels that made him godlike. The earlier Gospels were outlawed, gathered up, and burned. More than 80 Gospels are considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. That's the pages that they're at in that book. As more evidence is discovered proving that Textus Receptus matches quotes from early church fathers and the Alexandrian texts do not, these attacks are shifting to question the entire books themselves. The new attacks are called canon criticism. We don't have time to get into canon criticism yet. We will get into canon criticism next week. So, let's look at your homework. I think this week that I ask you to read through paragraph 4. Is that right? Everybody give me an acknowledgement of some kind there. All right, so I would say... Let's go ahead, I don't, I'm not sure how far we'll get into it, but let's go ahead and start, read paragraph 5 for next week and the scripture references that are in it. Let's close in a word of prayer.